Uh, As you're turning to Luke chapter 14, I want to talk on the subject this morning, uh, why we labor. Now, uh, not so much in your personal life, in this Labor Day weekend, do I want to talk about why you do what you do, what your vocation is, and whether you're finding fulfillment in that or not. But as a church, why do we labor? Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we have the programs? Why do we have the kinds of services that we do? Why do we uh, go about our ministry the way that we do? Uh, And what is it to uh, result in? And this morning I want to take that time that we have and and really walk through why we do what we do. And we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke this morning uh, to try to address it. And right away, uh, when we ask the question, why do we labor? Why do we involve ourselves in ministry? We have to go to what is our uh, kind of our vision statement. And and our vision statement is that we desire to uh, discover, develop, and deploy disciples. And uh, the thing that I want to talk about this morning is that middle section, that developing of disciples. Because what good is it to discover people uh, with the cause of Jesus Christ, to share the gospel with them, if we're not going to do anything with them? Jesus talks about uh, the parable of the, the sowers, or of the, the soils, if you will, where some of the soil uh, will take for a short time uh, that seed that is planted, but then it will die off, it will fall away, and it's of no value then. And so we want to take that seed, put it into the ground, and we want to see it grow and develop. And the way we'll know if we're growing and developing uh, disciples is if we're deploying them. And so this is kind of the hub of who we are and what we're all about. And we need to recognize and know if we're heading in the right direction, doing the things that we need to, and also to make sure everybody's aware of what their part is within this vision. And so within this developing of disciples, what is it to be a developed disciple? It's one who diligently learns, it's one who passionately loves, and it's one who purposely lives for the glory of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That are the, those are the kinds of people that we want to grow here at Village Bible Church. And it involves this idea of developing. Now, if I was to share with some of our young people, as I did uh, in the latter part of this week, I, I gave them a couple words that I wanted them to tell me what it was. I asked my son and a couple other teenagers, what is Kodak? My son said, it's a car company. I said, no, it's not a car company. What about Polaroid? He's like, I, I don't know. And that shows us that technology has moved really far in a short amount of years. But back in the ancient days, Kodak and Polaroid were two of our largest, not only camera uh, providers and manufacturers, but they were also the ones that created film. And back in the day, instead of using our smartphones, we used to have to do camera work the hard way. We would take a picture and then we would have to wait. We'd have to wait days to see what that picture resulted in. I can't tell you how many spankings I got because I made a funny face when the picture was taken. Forgot about that picture. Only weeks later for my mom to get the developed photos back and to be like, you didn't. Oh, you didn't. And then get a spanking out of it. You see, back in the day, photos had to be developed. You would have a, an exposure of 24 or 36 pictures. You didn't have numerous pictures. Today, we just press the button and we can keep going all day long. You know, kid, you can keep crying. We'll wait until you grow tired and finally break a smile because we've got all the memory in the world to take all the pictures we need. But back in the day, you only got a small uh, amount of photos to be able to take. Then you would take that film, you would take it to the local grocery store or drug store, and you'd have it developed. And what they would do is they would take that which was on the inside of that film, 
and they would expose it. They would put it under certain uh, kinds of uh, conditions which would allow it then to be exposed so that we could see what was on the inside of the film everybody would be able to see. That's what discipleship is all about. It's taking that which is on the inside of a person, their involvement and walk with Jesus Christ, and beginning to develop it so that the outside world can see it. You see, when you come to know Jesus, that's a personal thing. That's something that's happening on the inside. It begins with the mind and the heart. You're changed, you're impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's all happening internally. What the church's job is to do is take that which is internal, your walk with Jesus Christ, your feelings, your love for Jesus, and to expose it, put it in the right conditions, develop it, so that the rest of the world may be able to see it. But in order to do that, we have to follow a certain set of guidelines. Back in the day with regards to film, there was a certain process that allowed you to take that which was on the inside of that film canister and would allow it to be seen on the outside. Likewise, it is for us as well in the church. And, and that process is going to determine or set our steps and our ways as to how we as a church are going to go about doing ministry. And Luke chapter 14 gives us the picture that we need to see. Notice in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35, we are given a vision, a step-by-step process on what it means to take up the mantle of discipleship that Jesus has called us to be a part of. And if we miss it, if we ruin that process, then we will make something other than disciples. And so we've got to follow the process just as Jesus calls us to each and every step of the way, if we want the disciples we make to be disciples that Jesus wants. Look at Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Let's look at the text. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear uh, his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet still a great way off, that he would send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, How shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father God, we are coming to the very core of who we are and what we do as a congregation. And Lord, as we take stock in our own labors, in our own vocation on this Labor Day weekend, I pray that we would take stock as a church and ask why we labor 
Why do we toil? Why do we do the things we do? And that the pattern of our ministry, the reason for all that we do, would come back to not only winning people into the kingdom of God, but developing them to be followers of yours. Followers of yours who do what you say, who fulfill your commands, who, lo- who long to love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Lord, we are called that if we have ears to hear today, And Lord, I pray that we would not just hear the words of a man, but that we might look beyond me, the preacher this morning, and turn our ears to you, Jesus, the greatest of teachers, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's to you and to your glory all this we pray. Amen and amen. In our passage this morning, we're going to look at and learn what it means to be the church and how we can be successful at developing disciples. Now I want you to notice right off the bat that you don't hear me talking about anybody else. We haven't gone to a conference to come up with this model. We haven't uh, adopted it from another church. We, we haven't taken business paradigms and, and ideas from the secular world to fulfill this. But where we get our idea of what we are going to labor about comes from the words and the heart of Jesus himself. We are a church about discipleship because Jesus was at the heart of discipleship. And so we want to do what Jesus is doing, and we can't do it our way. We have to do it His way. If we desire as a church to be lauded lauded by by, uh, God in heaven, then it's His way, not our way. If we want Jesus to stand up and applaud the work that we're doing then we have to fulfill what he desires in the realm of discipleship, not what we do. And in order to do that, the first thing we must do is challenge the status quo. It involves challenging the status quo. Look at the text before us in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. I'm going to sit here for a while, and just as a point of reference, my first and second point are longer than my third and fourth point, which are very short. So you see four points, you get nervous, it's all right, we'll get out of here in, in, in good order. But Luke, in his great detail, tells us what's going on. A great group of people are following Jesus. This is not the first time nor the last time that Jesus is going to have a great crowd around him. Now, why would Luke tell us that? Because he wants us to know that Jesus was a quite very, quite very popular uh, teacher and leader. People wanted to be around Jesus. The crowd loved to see what Jesus was doing, whether it was exercising demons, whether it was healing people, whether it was raising the dead, whether it was uh, multiplying loaves and fishes, They loved, and when Jesus was around, things were happening. But they also loved what Jesus had to share. Numerous times in the Gospels, we're told that people were amazed by what Jesus was saying. And so it wasn't that just Jesus did some great things, he also taught some awesome things. And and because of that, Jesus had become the most famous and the most popular of all the rabbis in the first century and that's why so many of the Pharisees hated him he had taken their spotlights and we're told that uh, this great crowd had accompanied him this phrase great crowd we're told by other points in the Gospels would number into the thousands 
Even on some occasions we would see, number one, he would feed 5,000 on one occasion, and then he fed 4,000 on another occasion. And there's debate and question, was that 5,000 just men whom they usually counted in the first century? Or did that involve their whole families, where the number could have been 20 or 30,000 that were listening to Jesus? These thousands were accompanying Jesus. And if one was to look and to take that reference, that large crowds accompanied them, you might think that Jesus had everything going well for him and what he had built and established was something pretty awesome. Because doesn't size tell us the whole story? When we drive by a little A-frame church out in the country, and we see it, and it's a tidy little church and, and all of that. We, we assume that while it may be a good church, it's not that flashy of a church, that the church isn't doing all that much to accomplish the, the work of God, because surely if it was really doing what God wanted it to, God would in fact have it be a lot bigger. And then we drive by on a great big highway, a big church with all kinds of beautiful architecture, big parking lot, what seemingly is the footprint of a massive ministry, and we assume right away they're doing something great. God must be really, really proud of what they're doing because size does tell us that God affirms something about them because that's what we conclude. If there's a lot of people there, then they must be doing something right. And likewise, the people thought, well, if the crowd is following Jesus, then that's what Jesus must want, because then God must say that size of a church and the the largeness of a church is what, in, in essence, defines health. But Jesus challenges that. In John chapter 6, we see one of the greatest dichotomies of ministry In all of the scriptures, in John chapter 6, one of the most famous of miracles takes place, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus has been preaching all day long. Yes, I said all day long. And they're listening hour upon hour of Jesus' teaching. And the disciples hear the overwhelming groans of the stomach, the growlings of the stomachs of the people that are listening, and says, hey, Jesus is going a long time. Maybe we'll stop. And we'll get everybody fed. we got to let them go, go home and all that. But by the time they get home, they'll not be able to come back. So what are we going to do? So they take the problem to Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, see what you can do. See what you can find. And they come back. And of all the people, they can find this young boy who's got some food, a couple loaves, and, and some fishes. And, and Jesus takes it. And here's what I love. Jesus takes his hat off of preaching and puts his catering hat on. What a novel approach, right? To go from preaching to catering, and that's what Jesus does. And Jesus begins to multiply the loaves and fishes. And these thousands of people are able to eat and be filled and stay and hang around because Jesus is going to preach the dessert, if you will, and go longer into the day. And at that moment, thousands of people have fallen in love with Jesus. Not only does He preach a great message, but He gives you a great meal In the process, we love Jesus. Give us more of Jesus. And so the next day, John 6 says, the thousands show back up. And Jesus has 
discern, because he's the Son of God, the hearts and minds of men and women. And he says, listen, if you want to be my followers, you can't just come for the show. You can't just come and, and be a spectator. What you need to do in John chapter 6, a very famous passage of Scripture, he says, if you want to be my follower, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And you know what happens? People start leaving. Not just dozens or hundreds, but thousands. So many leave after Jesus says, you can't just hang around me and, and enjoy the, the fun stuff about me. You can't just come and, and be a spectator. You're going to really have to take all of me. And are you willing to do that? Because I'm going to die here in, in, a, in a couple of years. And, and I'm going to go to the cross. And, and I'm going to look for followers who are going to give me their entire life, not just a, a couple hours of a show. And what happens in one day, Jesus, and imagine this for a moment. That Jesus is preaching to crowds in the thousands. He preaches one sermon. So first sermon, one day, thousands of people. The next day they come, he preaches another sermon. And the church that he has goes from the thousands, the text tells us, down to 12. Now, let me tell you something. If I lost that many people in one sermon, I wouldn't want to be at the meeting the next day. What happened? What transpired? The message hadn't changed, but Jesus challenged the status quo. Don't just be here to get your bellies fed. Be here to count the cost, take up your cross, and follow me. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus challenged consumer Christianity. He pursues a crowd of consumers. And it begs the question this morning, are you, am I, a consumer? Are we consumers? Are we here to just follow Jesus for what he helps us in our life with? Are we here because we enjoy the way that it feels to be a part of a Sunday morning? Is there something about what we do that just makes you feel better about your yourself. I like the music. Uh, Tim preaches a, a good message. I just feel good about things. My life seems to go better when I show up to, to church. Jesus seems to challenge that kind of thinking. And what he wants to ask is, are we a crowd of consumers or are we committed contributors? Are we giving ourselves wholly over to Jesus? Or are we there for something that Jesus can give us, something of selfish value? You see, consumer Christianity, you're wondering, well, I'm not sure, Tim, so help me out. Well, consumer Christianity is where you are the customer, and your ideals and preferences and desires and, and, and wants come first. It's about you. And so maybe this morning you came and you came to church, and you will know if you are a, a consumer Christian, if you are constantly doing a customer review on your time in the church. I walked in today, and nobody said hello to me, so I'll give it one star. I don't like how the bulletin looks, so I'll give that two stars. 
I don't like how they started the service today. They didn't sing the songs I wanted them to sing. And, uh, you know, I just, <laughs> I, I just, you know, I don't like that greet one another time. And good golly, how long is Tim going to preach? I mean, I, I got to sit here and watch the big boy sweat today. I mean, come on. You know, why can't we be more professional? Why can't we be more this? Why, why can't we make things more interactive? I mean, Joel Osteen preaches in 28 minutes. Why can't Pastor Tim? And so we begin to start putting these things and, and, uh, and we start evaluating. And, and here's what consumer Christianity says. I am the standard. Church, meet it. And some of us this morning have established that we're the standard. So our preferences, our desires, our wants is how we view church. But I want you to know what Jesus says is, if that's where you're at, you're not going to follow me for very long. And what Jesus says is, I'm the standard. I'm the standard. So here's the question that we have to ask. We have to ask the question, not do I like these things? And I'm not saying that it's bad to have preferences. Please don't get me wrong. But the real question we have to ask about our involvement, engagement in the church is not what do I think about it, but what does Christ think about it? What's Christ saying about the music we're singing? What's Christ saying about Pastor Tim's message? What's Christ saying about how we interact and, and how we do things? Is Christ the standard by which we go by or ourselves? And if we're the standard, if it's what we think, if it's what we desire, then we become the standard instead of Christ. And so here's Jesus saying, listen, you're going to have to make a decision. He uses the phrase in the text. He says in verse 33, Therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It is either going to be your way or Jesus' way. But you cannot tell Jesus, I'm one of your disciples and it's all about you. You can't do it. Jesus says, I'll have nothing to do with that type of Christianity. And so we have to ask the question this morning, are we the standard or is Christ the standard? Well, in light of these couple words here that large crowds now accompanied him, a couple things that I just would want to highlight for you, and you can write these things down. These are important statements I'm about to make. Number one, there's nothing in the text that says crowds are inherently bad. There's nothing. Jesus doesn't say, shut the doors. We're only going to be a church of 300, so everybody else get out. He doesn't say that. In fact, Jesus welcomes the crowds. Jesus had compassion on the crowds. Jesus nowhere calls out the crowd as evil. And nor will we. This church has grown a great uh, amount over these last years. And we will not hit a point where we'll say, well, that's a bad number to be at. The number is irrelevant. What's relevant is what does that number represent? If we're just, just doing things so that the numbers will continue to grow, that's a problem. But if people are coming hungry to hear about the Word of God, wanting to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ, that's a good thing. But here's the thing that I want you to recognize, which Jesus recognized. While numbers aren't inherent, large numbers are not inherently a bad thing, large numbers can be a great cover for people who have little desire to live for Christ. And so what you have is a large number of people who all have different sets of ideals and expectations of what their encounter with Jesus is going to be about. 
and numbers allow you to kind of hide. Well, I'm here to kind of just see what happens. I'm here just to kind of crash the party, just to get a sense of what's going on. And, and as a church gets bigger, it becomes easier and easier to become a little more anonymous, to kind of just hang on the peripheral side of things. And so what, what we then therefore have to do as the church continues to grow is we have to do what, what Jesus did. We have to make it hard for people just to hang around. We have to make it a difficult for you to be comfortable in just sitting around being a consumer and not one who's contributing as a disciple of Jesus Christ. In our dessert nights at our house, Pastor Steve will inevitably say to each of our new people, he'll say, listen, you're going to hear from me in the days to come. And quite frankly, I'm going to I'm going to bombard you with stuff. I'm going to kind of be in your business. I'm going to, he even might even use the phrase jokingly, I'm going to stalk you. Why? Because we don't want you to just kind of hang around. We want to know how do we help you become a better follower of Jesus Christ. And we're not okay with people just coming in and just kind of hanging out with no real purpose and just kind of enjoying it. That's not what we're here about. What we're here about is taking people who are either unbelievers or, or believers in Jesus Christ and growing them in their faith walk. That's why we exist. That's why we labor to develop disciples. So therefore, we will never die on a hill that makes this church larger just for simple numbers sake. That's why we preach the Word of God as we do. That's why we, we shun some of the elements of marketing that I know other churches do. And we say, listen, it's just not to garner a whole bunch of people here. But what it is to do is to take the people we have and make them better followers of Christ. And so that's what we want to do. We want to challenge people. And notice how Jesus does it. Notice in the, in, the, in the verse he says, whoever does not bear his own cross. I want you to recognize this morning that what Jesus does is what I do, and the elders will, will tell me from time to time, hey, maybe it's time for one of those operation crowd reduction sermons. Maybe we need to ask the question this morning, what Jesus does. So Jesus has got this great big crowd with him. Great crowds accompany him. He doesn't badmouth the crowd, but the message is, I want you to carry your cross. And, and we think in the year 2017 that the cross is the nice platinum cross that we wear, and, and it's pretty, or the cross that we see behind me. It's an architectural thing. This is great. But what Jesus is saying is, listen, to carry your cross would be in our vernacular, I want you to deny yourself and take up an electric chair. A mode of execution. The people that are listening to Jesus' message know because probably, you know, I wonder if Jesus is not far from where the executions on the cross were taking place, which were commonplace in Roman culture. And what would have transpired is, and I don't mean to be crass, but a man would be hung naked on a cross for the whole world to see and would be shamed for the sinner that he was. What we're called to is, is to, in essence, show all of who we are as sinners so that the world may see the changed life that Christ has made. That's what Jesus is calling people to. And I can assure you, many of the thousands that came and heard what Jesus was saying were like, forget that. I was just here for the show. I was just here 
for a little food in my belly. And you're telling me that I'm going to put myself out for shame, that I may have to die to some things in my life? Forget it. And yet what we see, and we've got to be careful with it, is churches upon churches that are there and for the sole reason of of attracting people through entertainment and self-help sermons. It wasn't too many years ago that one of the largest churches in America came to a point that they were building buildings upon buildings and having bigger events upon bigger events and they asked the question, what are we really accomplishing? And they did a statistic or a survey of their, of their people and they learned that their people weren't disciples at all. They were just there for the show. Now God bless them that they had the wherewithal to ask that question. And what they learned was all of the events that they were doing, all of their programs, if it didn't involve discipleship, it could build big buildings and a big following. But what it did not create was discipleship. And they had to rethink what they were doing. They had to rethink it. And, and because we can fall prey that if we get a big crowd then Jesus is saying, well done. Jesus says, the way that you deal with a big crowd is not call it sinful, but challenge it. Next thing we need to do is notice, we need to connect people. We need to connect people with the demands of discipleship. And that's what Jesus does. Notice in the text, he begins to bring people's attention to stuff, and he says in one phrase, discipleship involves counting the cost. Verse 28. You want to know if you want to be a disciple, you got to count the cost. You got to do the math. Is it worth it? There's nothing more that irritates me as a pastor than the sad idea that we have in the evangelical world that you can be a Christian and have nothing to show for it. That you can say you're a follower of Christ but not do what Jesus says. And we struggle with that in our American Christianity all the time. 45, 50% of Americans say they're followers of Jesus Christ. And then you look at the world, at the country and you're like, but it can't be the case. Our world would be different. Our country would be different. But people say this. I had a, read uh, some time back an article in the Huffington Post where the article was entitled, I am a Christian but disagree with much of what Jesus teaches. Come on! There's a Greek word for that. It's the Greek word skubalon. It means garbage, poop, rubbish. That's just, that's not, it's terrible. How can you say you're a follower of Jesus and not do what he says? Notice what Jesus says in verses 26, 28, and 33. If you don't do certain things, you cannot be my disciple. And be careful. Because some might say, well, I'm a Christian. I don't need to be a disciple. The distinction of that is nowhere found in the New Testament. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. Now notice what Jesus says. You want to know if you're a disciple? Ask some questions. First question is about your worship. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yet even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So, we need to recognize what Jesus is not saying is that you can hate people as of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. I don't want a young person to go home, beat up on their sibling and say, well, Jesus told me i got to hate you. That's not the case. Jesus is using a level of exaggeration here. And what he's saying is, listen, I am number one. I am your number one relationship. I am your number one priority. Don't even allow those noble relationships of family and spouses and kids 
to trump who I am in your life. If somebody is more important than Jesus, you don't just have a relationship issue, you have an idolatry issue. And Jesus says, my disciples will make me number one. You're going to renounce everything else, everyone else, as being number one because I come first. I am your first love. Now, could my children and my wife become jealous of that? They shouldn't. Because if Jesus is Tim's number one, then I'm going to be a better dad. I'm going to be a better husband. Because I'm going to be taught by Jesus to love Amanda as Christ loved the church. I'm going to be taught to teach my boys in the fear and admonition of the Lord. When Jesus is number one, all my other relationships will fall right where they need to. Jesus promises that. Number two, once we see our worship, Jesus asks the question, what about our work? What about our work? Jesus moves from worship to work of the disciple. And in verse 28 and 29, he says, now... For which of you, desiring to build a tower or some sort of project, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, but was not able to finish. And so he sits there and he says, Okay, discipleship is a lot like a project. And you've got to, before you get into this thing, you've got to ask the question, am I going to be willing to be equal to the task of what God is calling me to? Or am I going to have this big dream, I'm going to do this thing. And so here's what happens. We watch the Home and Garden Network, right? And we see that they start fixing up the house. And we're like, well, I can do that. And it sure looks easy. They did that in a half an hour. I can do it in a half an hour. And so we go and we start getting some of the stuff and we start getting into the project and the project takes longer than we thought it was going to and it always costs us more than we wanted to. And what happens with most of our projects, people? They go left undone, right? They're still halfway put together. They're not completed. Either we ran out of time for it or we ran out of money for it. Jesus says, don't get this big dream and this big idea about Christianity... Because there's going to be hidden costs to being my follower. And it's not that Jesus is saying, I'm going to hide things from you. What Jesus is saying is this project is way bigger than at first glance you might think it is. So Jesus says, sit down and start running the totals of what this is going to cost. So if you want to be a follower of mine, you've got to understand it's going to cost you a whole lot more than maybe you think. And some of us have come to Jesus because he's warmed our heart and we've been a part of a great service, a great thing, and we, we see what Jesus is doing in the lives of people and we say, I want Jesus. But we haven't thought that by taking Jesus, it may mean a loss of relationships. It may mean a loss of, of our place in the workplace. It may mean a loss of popularity. It may mean a loss of preferences because Jesus may say, I want you to do this with your money. I want you to do this with your time. And if you're going to be a follower of his, you've got to do what he says and and maybe you haven't counted the cost and say, hey, I, I didn't know it was going to cost me all that. And what happens is, is just like the man who starts the tower building, he leaves it. And it's a reminder to all others, it says, and they will mock him because he started something he couldn't finish. In essence, he talked a big game, but the mouth didn't, uh, the mouth didn't uh, uh, follow the, the, 
the walk. It didn't, it didn't live up to what it said it was going to. And that's what happens. Down in the LaSalle, Peru area, on right on Interstate 80, there's a frame of a church that looks just like Village. Okay, I don't know what shape this is, octagon or whatever this shape is of this building. And I always wonder, what happened? Because they just got the steel structure up and then it's there. Nothing else has taken place. And I wonder if people said, man, that church started out really well. They had a great plan. And it never came to fruition because it has sat there now for 15 years just like that. And when we get started in our walk and talk a big game, I'm a follower of Jesus, follower of Jesus, and then two years down the road, the unbelieving world sees you're living like them, doing the thing. They say, wait a minute. I thought you were a follower of Jesus. Ah, I'm not that anymore. It was too high of a cost. I wanted my Sundays. I wanted this. I wanted that. Jesus says, count the cost and recognize within it there's always hidden costs. So spend time thinking about what you're committing to because it's an enormous commitment. Notice third, he deals with a war analogy. And he says, discipleship is like a general heading into battle. And likewise, the general needs to count the cost. Do I have enough to win the war? Question number one. Number two, is this war going to cost me in lives and in losses more than I'm willing to handle? So if that's the case, then the option number three is, if it is, then don't go to war at all. Stay out of war. We're dealing with that as in a country right now, in our country, and we're praying for our president and our leaders to have wisdom. Many of you know, maybe you didn't, here, North Korea let off a hydrogen bomb last night. The bomb was so big that the entire country of North Korea experienced a 6.2 earthquake. Massive bomb. Now, that's one thing. The problem is, is that dictator has pointed out areas of the United States that he wants to throw that bomb towards. Now, our president has to deal with some questions. Number one, am I going to go to war? Do I have enough to go to war with? Well, the answer is yes. There's no country in this world that's as powerful as the United States is militarily. So, number one, the answer is yes. The second thing that our president has to count the cost is, is what happens if I go to war with North Korea? And scholars around that area would say the biggest concern is the howitzer cannons that are pointed at the 20 million people in Seoul, South Korea. And that the carnage, the death toll, wouldn't be in the thousands or the tens of thousands, but probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And so we have to then ask the question, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to send our men and women off into harm's way for this? Or is there a better option? You see, generals understand what it means to count the cost. And so I'm going to imagine our president isn't going to say, let's start World War III tomorrow. What he's going to say is, what economic sanctions can we do? How can we bring China and Russia into this equation and put pressure on this dictator to stop doing the things that he's doing. Why? Because presidents recognize they have to count the cost when it comes to war. And likewise, we need to do the same thing. Understand, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are entering into a battle. Number two, are you willing to endure the losses in your life that will come by doing battle with Jesus? If not, then stay out. He says. Notice finally he says, witness. Verse 34 and 35, he goes on, he uses another illustration. Jesus is full of illustrations here. Salt is good, 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. And so what Jesus is saying here is, listen, to be a disciple means you're going to be engaged in the world. You're going to be in close proximity to the world, and your proximity to the world has a purpose to it. You are to make the world salty with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you don't do that, then you're of no value. Jesus says you're not good for the ground, you're not good for the manure pile. And people who say, listen, what Jesus is saying is, person who says they're a disciple but doesn't do anything with that discipleship, you're of no value to Jesus. You're a talking head. And so stop talking that you're a follower of Jesus and not living up to what Jesus is saying. He goes, I got no use for you. There's of no value. And that doesn't mean a disciple doesn't fall. He doesn't, doesn't run into problems and temptation and sometimes get tripped up. What Jesus is saying is that you're hanging around me for what I can give you and using the phrase, I'm a disciple, and telling the world that you're a disciple and not doing anything about it. Jesus says, I have no use for you if you're going to talk a big game but not live it. That's what discipleship is all about. It is not a religious activity that makes you look or feel better. If it is, you're wasting your time. I told the first service this. If you're here just for feeling good about yourself, then I'm saying as a pastor, I'm releasing you. You don't have to come. You're wasting your time. Go mow your grass. Go wash your car. Go finish that project you don't have done. Go pick up that hobby. But if you're here with the idea that, Jesus, I want to be more like you. Jesus, I want to be changed by the gospel. And so I'm going to come in because I know left to myself, I'm a sinner. Left to myself, I'm going to fall to temptations. Jesus, I need you to be in my life so that I can change the world because of you. Then you're in the right place. And we want to grow you, and we want to disciple you, and we want to train you and show you how you can do that. And how will we do that? Notice the church's side of it. We're going to commit to a particular model of ministry. So outside of the text, we've addressed the text this morning. How are we going to do it? We broaden out to the gospel part of the text, and we say, well, what does the gospel say about how we do this? Notice Jesus did three things. It involved interaction. It involved instruction and involved imitation. And so Village Bible Church is going to develop people through three things. Number one, interaction. We need you around other disciples. We need you around Jesus. And so we're going to make sure that our interactions are good and positive interactions. Jesus spent three and a half years with his disciples. Jesus did not send just a book from heaven. He did not give them a pill. Hey, take this pill and you'll be my disciple. To be a disciple of Jesus is to spend time with Jesus and other Christians. That's why we do what we do. That's why things like small group are so important and church attendance is so important. Because we want us to be interacting with one another. Number two, instruction. Jesus instructed his disciples. Jesus all the time was teaching his disciples. And that's why when we gather in our small groups or gather together here, we don't just hang out. We don't just interact and talk about the weather and talk about the sports and and talk about how work was this week or how school was. We open God's word and we're instructed by it. 
Why? Because Jesus says if you are going to be a disciple, in fact, the word disciple is learner. You're going to learn. Well, what are we going to learn? What's going to be our curriculum? The words of Jesus. The words of Jesus and his disciples. We're going to learn. And and what we're going to learn is what it means to imitate Jesus. A disciple is one who follows. Who follows the teacher. And so if you are saying, I'm a disciple, but as you look at your life, there's nothing that looks like Jesus in your life, then someone's wrong. And I'm going to tell you it's not God, because God's going to say, you're not, you cannot be my disciple. But if you can look at your life and say, I desire to imitate Jesus, I desire to talk like Jesus, and walk like Jesus, and serve like Jesus, and and help like Jesus, and reach the world like Jesus then you can know with full confidence you are a disciple of Jesus. Are you a part of this kind of ministry? The fall is kicking off this week. The church has set up their ministry for these three things to take place. Engage in it so that you can be a better follower of Jesus Christ as you interact, as you imitate, and as you're instructed in the ways of the Lord. That leads me to one final point, and And that is that we've got to celebrate its progress along the way. So God's going to do this amazing work in and through us. And this discipleship work is is going to uh, change who we are. And here's some promises that Jesus gives. Number one, when we engage in the discipleship process, God promises that he will finish what he has started. And so you're wondering, you're sitting there going, I've been a disciple and I'm trying real hard, but... I fall to temptations, and and I'm not sure I'm doing the best job I can. You can have confidence that as you keep your eyes on Jesus, God says, I began a good work in you, and I'll be faithful to see it. He's going to finish it. And that's awesome. This project of the church is not going to be left undone. It is going to be fulfilled. And so we celebrate that God is finishing the work that he started in people. Number two, as a church, when we buy into discipleship, We recognize, because the Scriptures articulate, that God is giving us all we need to support the vision. So we don't have to wonder, are we going to have enough money? We don't have to wonder, are we going to have enough uh, leaders to do the job? We don't have to wonder if we're going to have enough gifts to support what needs to be done. God says He'll give us all that we need for life and godliness when we put our focus on Him. When we put our trust in Him. And so we recognize as a church, God's going to finish the work that He does, And until he does, he's going to support it all along the way. This church for 40 years has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as a collective group of people. We've never run out of money. We've never run out of people. We've always had exactly what we needed. Because God's going to finish. He's going to fulfill his promises. Finally, the reason why we do it this way is because God has shown us this strategy works. 2,000 years, the strategy of disciple-making has carried the day. It's carried the day in extreme paganism. It's carried the day when it seems like the church is winning the war in the culture. It's carried the day in communist places and democratic places. It has carried the day in industrial times and also primitive times. It has and will continue to carry the day because the gospel will not have the gates of hell prevailing against it. And so we can know the strategy works. And that's why as a church, we've dedicated ourselves to discover, develop, 
and deploy disciples because we believe at the heart of it is the heart of Jesus Christ. So join on. Come and be a part of it. Ask yourself a couple questions as we close this out. Am I a disciple? Am I a disciple? And if I'm not a disciple, or if I'm not the kind of disciple that I should be, then what is keeping me from doing it? What's keeping me from counting the cost and following Jesus? What's keeping me from renouncing all that I have so that I can uh, take in all of Jesus? Because anything less than that, Jesus says he doesn't have time for us. He wants us to give ourselves over to him. So, you want to follow Jesus? Count the cost. Carry your cross. Deny yourself and follow Jesus. And as a church, we're going to strive to that end. Believing God will carry us every step 